You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 962 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you late into the night here on a Thursday into Friday. And today's show is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the Locker Room app from the iOS app store and find one of our Locked on Rooms. Locker Room, changing the way we talk sports. As always, we will have analysis of the Hawks-Spurs game this evening, but there was more news than usual on this Thursday. And because of that, we're starting with non-game stuff. First... John Collins, there's an update on his status. Uh, He left the game, of course, on Tuesday at halftime with a left ankle sprain. He was already ruled out of Thursday's game on the initial report. As a result of that, then the Hawks announced a formal update on Thursday afternoon. Collins had an MRI on Wednesday that diagnosed him with a lateral ankle sprain and associated bone bruise. That was the wording that the Hawks used. And they also said that he has, quote, started low-level rehabilitation activities end quote. He'll be reviewed in one week, which again, as I always say, review does not mean return. That's important to note. Um, Before Thursday, Collins was the only player on the Hawks roster to start all 47 games and one of only two guys on the team, along with Kevin Herter, to play all 47 games. Um, You know, you can't pencil him into return in just a week. Even if he did, though, he's going to miss five games at least because the Hawks have a very, very busy week coming up with five games in seven days. Um, And even before Thursday's game, the Hawks were flying high. I mean, they're really good when John Collins plays, basically. They're 7.5 points per 100 possessions better when he plays, according to Cleaning the Glass. And that tracks. Obviously, he's one of their best players. That's a big loss. Um, obviously, this is not the worst news in the world. It could have been much worse than this. At the same time, a multi-game absence for John Collins comes at a pretty poor time, given all, all this happening with DeAndre Hunter, etc. So, that's the latest there. I'm not going to try to guess uh, as far as when he's going to come back, but it's obviously a huge loss. We'll touch on that later on as well. But Hunter missed his fourth straight game tonight, and he'll miss again on Friday. So pretty shorthanded for the Hawks at the forward spot. And also Collins unlocked so much as a backup center as well. So that's a big loss in the meantime. Elsewhere on the news front on Thursday, Nate McMillan won Eastern Conference play. Sorry, Eastern Conference Coach of the Month. Uh, the Hawks went 9-4. and four. In March, of course, tied for the third-best record in the Eastern Conference in that span. That was enough to win the award for Nate. The Hawks outscored their opponents by 65 points over the 13 games. That's a five-point-per-game margin over their opponents in that stretch. They won eight games in a row, of course, to start the month of March after McMillan took over, right as he took over, actually. That was the longest win streak the Hawks have had since 2015, and the longest to start an in your tenure during the season since 2003-2004, so uh, some pretty uncharted territory there for McMillan. It's the eighth time that a Hawks coach is one coach of the month since they started doing the award and the uh, first time since Mike Budenholzer in January 2015 when the Hawks did not lose for the entire month. Um, also, McMillan's seventh coach of the coach of the month honor dating back to Indiana as well as Seattle and Portland. Um, the Hawks did lose, of course, five to the last, four of the last five, which is pretty crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's kind of rare for a coach of the month to lose four of the last five games in the month. But when you come out of the gates flying and win your first eight games, it becomes a lot easier to do that. So, obviously, a heck of a way to start the tenure for Nate McMillan. Hawks had a really good month in March, despite the uh, sort of downturn at the end. So, no surprise that he was honored. And uh, there you go on that. And the last thing on the news front before we get to the game itself was uh, Chris Crusher of The Athletic talked to Bogdan Madonovic on Thursday. And just some highlights from that. I definitely recommend reading the entire piece. It's behind a paywall. I won't give the entire thing away as a result of that, but I would recommend reading that and subscribing to The Athletic if you want all of that information. Um, Bogdanovich did say that he expected to start 
when he got to Atlanta. And of course, he wasn't starting early in the year. It was Cam Reddish at times. It was Kevin Herter at times. But he did say he was going to be a professional that would do whatever the team needed. There was some buzz before the trade deadline, especially that Bogdanovich did not love coming off the bench. I think I probably, uh, you know, I heard that as well. And his statements here didn't really contradict that necessarily. Um, he referenced early in the season being sort of used in a more of a catch and shoot role, which is something that we talked about a lot in this podcast. I know Glenn Willis has, myself, Andrew Kelly, a couple other guests that I've had in the past have talked about that, that he was kind of used as a pretty um, stationary, like catch and shoot, smaller usage player. That was not his best role. I didn't love that. And he talked about that as well. They're running more plays in his view under McMillan, which I think definitely can be seen on film. And McMillan said that as well, that you're kind of using more off-ball action, which I think Magdalenevich takes to very well and are letting him cook a little bit more, which is a good decision. I think for a long time, I've thought that Magdalenevich was underrated as a playmaker. He's not a primary guy by any means, but someone who's who is probably able... I would say definitely able to do more than he was being asked to do early on. And obviously he had the injury as well. That kind of is important to point out that Bogdanovich was not himself for most of the season. So it's not like, you know, apples and apples, we'll say. It's more like apples and oranges when it comes to when he was playing early on in the season versus now. But he is being used in a much better way, which he kind of talked about under McMillan versus Pierce. He did seem like he was pretty positive about McMillan overall, especially when comparison in comparison to Pierce. And sort of his, his experience overall has been uh, pretty positive, it seems like. That's good news, especially because the Hawks did not trade him. He was, of course, in those discussions. Chris asked him about that. Uh, you, can read, you can read the answer in The Athletic. But, um, you know, he seemed to be you know, taking the professional route. But now that he's on the team, at least till the summer, if not longer than that, you want to you definitely have him happy. He's been starting since then, and that makes a lot of sense as well. Also, he talks about having COVID and how that took him a while to, to get back to action at full strength. He talks about kind of being gassed in his first uh, practices before he, uh, sorry, after he came back from COVID. He kind of, he said that on the record early on that he had COVID. I uh, talked to Sam Amick earlier in the process, but just another reminder that COVID uh, affects even the highest level athletes for a long period of time. I know Jason Tatum said the same thing. This is not like a, bl- a blip on the radar necessarily. Uh, and also, finally, he expressed optimism about the, where the Hawks are now. Talks about being in a good spot for the playoff race, so that's pretty standard comments, but I think that's definitely worth a read. Bogdanovich, anytime you get like a one-on-one right now, it's more longer in-depth. It's definitely interesting to read that, so check that out at The Athletic. But nothing like massively news-breaking, but certainly he was uh, praising of McMillan and talked about the fact that uh, I thought it was interesting that he at least noted that he expected to start when he got to Atlanta, because I think, as I've said for a long time, starting lineups are kind of overrated, but they also do matter. Players definitely care about that stuff, and Bogdanovich definitely seemed to as well. Okay, before we get to the game itself, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast I think you're really going to love, and it's called Death at the Wing. It's a sports documentary podcast hosted by Adam McKay, the writer-director of Big Short, Vice, and Anchorman. 1980s basketball saw players like Magic Johnson and Dr. J become household names, bringing a faster and flashier style of play that captivated TV audiences. But along the way to wealth and stardom, the excess of the 80s took its toll on the next generation of basketball, and never in the history of any sport have we seen so many who were ready to become stars face tragic deaths in such a short time frame. McKay is joined by sports journalists and experts who live through these moments in history to explore this overlooked phenomenon and the web of social, political, and cultural influences at play. This is a podcast I think you'll really enjoy if you enjoy this podcast as well as just the NBA in general and the stories that come alongside of it. If you love The Last Dance or 30 for 30, I think you're going to love Death at the Wing. And from this point forward, you can search for Death at the Wing wherever you get your podcast to start listening. I would fully recommend doing that. Again, search Death at the Wing wherever you get your podcast and begin listening now. So I opened the show with the news portion in part because there was a lot of news, but also because this is a marathon game, so we'll dive into it now. 
The Hawks win in double overtime, of course, on the road in San Antonio. Their second straight win in San Antonio after losing there for 20 years. Not exaggerating. Uh, so that's that's nice to see from, from Atlanta. But we'll dive in, as we always do, on the podcast. Pre-game stuff, we talked about Collins earlier and mentioned Hunter. But Hunter is going to be actually ruled out for both Thursday and Friday, according to Nick McMillan. He said... Um, in pregame that he went through a workout on Wednesday and was not ready to go. That was all we got. So uh, the last that we heard, he had some swelling, but no official update on Hunter. Um, we're all just guessing, but he's not going to play on Friday. That's for sure. Um, and by the way, with that said, the Hawks only play one game this entire season with their entire core in place, if you include Reddish, because Reddish was out when Hunter came back. So that's that continues. They end up starting Solomon Hill in this game, which was not a huge surprise to me. I saw some fans that were upset or bothered or surprised, and I get that. He's not as good as Gallinari, for for sure. But the Spurs play pretty small with um, DeRozan and Keldon Johnson at the three and the four. And also, McMillan's a big proponent of keeping guys together in groups, and Gallinari's been thriving in that bench role, so that didn't surprise me too much. At any rate, they played Gallinari a ton in the overtime periods. He ended up playing a ton of minutes, so no real concerns there. The Spurs on a back-to-back as well. Uh, actually, sorry, back-to-back, and the Hawks were not in this game, which might have been at least a small uh, edge for Atlanta coming in. But still, the Hawks were so, was, were so short-handed, they, they were actually underdogs at tip-off. According to our friends at Atlanta AG, they were actually one-point underdogs in this game. And that proved prescient, because obviously this game was pretty much a toss-up the entire way. So, uh, we'll get into the game now. The Hawks scored well at the start. Um, they led 19-15. to Pretty much standard operating procedure on the rotation, except for the fact that Lou Williams, um, I almost said debuted, returned to Atlanta. Um, obviously, this is his second stint with the Hawks, but the first time, this time, with Atlanta. He played and came in and played pretty well, honestly. Played alongside Brandon Goodwin and Onyeke Kongwu at the outset. It was a full second unit a couple different times for the Hawks in this game with Williams and Goodwin together. That pairing is interesting to me. Obviously, they're pretty small with Lou and BG playing together. But Goodwin does bring energy and also defense in a way that some other guys may not. And obviously with Hunter out as well and Collins, they're pretty short-handed. You can play them with Mays, but Mays is kind of limited athletically as well. You might want that burst that Goodwin brings. So I didn't have a huge problem with that. And actually, Brandon, I thought was, was pretty good in this game. A couple of big shots. And also kind of a headliner that's lost with how crazy this game was late. Akangwu had the best game of his career. And we'll talk about that more later on. But he was really good. He scored six points in the first minute of play that he came in. Energy was really good. Defensively, it was good. They were, they were kind of playing a zone for the most part with the, with the second unit, which I actually liked because if you have Lou Williams and Gallinari playing together, it's not going to go well defensively if you try to play traditionally. So I think that's a good idea to, to try to use that zone um, pretty frequently on the second unit, and that worked out in this spot. In fact, though, Akangwu and Goodwin scored the final 11 points of the first quarter. feels like that was a lifetime ago, given how long this game was. But that was a pretty crazy, uh, weird run including a buzzer beater three by Goodwin uh, late in the first to go up by 10. But yeah, the Hawks led by 10, and that kind of tells you the story, as Atlanta led the entire game, essentially, um, and they were in control. The Spurs did kind of fight back. Derek White was really hot throughout the game. Um, they kind of brought Bogdanovich back in with the bench, but Lou got to the mid-range. I, th- I, sh- I thought he kind of looked like himself in a good way, offensively, when he was out there. Um, <laughs> sort of a sidebar, but McMillan had to use a challenge on an absolutely absurd out-of-bounds call in the second quarter. It was the right challenge. I don't love using challenges in the first half when it's one that's like so incredibly obvious. It's frustrating that he hadn't even had to use it because it was such a bad call. Anyway, he did that. The Hawks led by as many as 10 in the second quarter as well. Settled in up by six at the half. Um, Trey got his second foul on offense. It actually came out of the game and was um, 
attended to by some trainers, as, we, as we'll get into later. He was fantastic in the overtime periods, but Trey is definitely not 100% right now. Um, the Hawks said officially that he, quote, tweaked his left knee during the, during the first half. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens there, but he played the rest of the game, so... We'll see if he's, if he's available to play on Friday, but he uh, was not his full self, like, athletically, burst-wise, but I thought he played, obviously, quite well at the end of this game. The Hawks didn't shoot it incredibly well at for most of this game. They shot okay, obviously, and ended up shooting really well from three, but a lot of that was kind of late. They were not, like, lighting it up in the first half of this game, which is kind of funny, given how the scoring went. In fact, the Hawks were winning at the half, but if you read down the final box score, so, for instance, the first half, the Hawks shoot... Two of nine from three. The rest of the game, they shot 11 of 15. So just like scalding hot from three the rest of the game. And you wouldn't have known that necessarily by the way the game flow went because the Hawks obviously lost the second half of this game. Um, even with the overtime period included, the Hawks lost the second half because they were up by six at the half and won that, ended up winning by five. But um, yeah, just one of those things. They shot better, even though they didn't necessarily, I guess they had to because they stopped getting as many stops in the second half. At any rate, um, Capella was awesome, by the way, in the first half. He had 18 points and 7 rebounds and 3 blocks before halftime. Missed a few bunnies, but one of the stories of the game, kind of, again, underrated, is that Capella shot, I believe, yeah, Capella shot 10 of 10 from the line. Now, that's good for anyone, but Capella entered this game 55% from 3, sorry, from, from the free throw line on the season, and 10 of 10 is a pretty big outlier on a night for him, given what he's been for his career and this season. Uh, and he and Gallinari were the only guys that were perfect from the free throw line, which is pretty crazy. So that's a nice little sidebar. But I thought he was really, really good in the first half. Not quite as good after halftime, but still a good night for Capella. Um, in the third quarter, it was Bogdanovich that took over. Um, as we talked about him on Tuesday's podcast, he was actually the Michelob Ultra Player of the Week on this podcast. But he was awesome in this game as well. He had a trio of threes early in the third quarter. Uh, at one point, he had 21 points on 11 shot attempts. He cooled off a little bit from there. But even then, he finished the night with 28 points on 17 shots, which is still like absolutely, you know, excellent by any measure. But then Snell hit a three as well. The Hawks hit four threes in the first three and a half minutes of the third quarter, led by as many as 11 points in that run. Um, some foul issues for Trey Young, which actually came back a little bit later on. He had four, he had four fouls with five minutes to go in the third, and ended up sitting for a very, very long time. He he sat for 11 minutes which never happens. Part of that might have been the injury as well. Lou, Lou had it going a little bit, but that was kind of interesting to point out. Um, you know, the Spurs made their run late in the third with Trey off the court for a little while. Got back within four. They went with a williams herder Bogdanovich trio with Trey off the court late, and then they brought Goodwin back in with Okongwu. It was notable to me that they played Okongwu and Goodwin together again in the second half. A lot of times recently the Hawks have given you know, either Maze or Goodwin or and then either Knight or Kongbu like one stint in the first half and then never and then never play again. In this game, both those guys played multiple stints. Part of that's probably you know being shorthanded without Collins, but definitely noteworthy on the same level. And also a nice block from Kongbu on Kelton Johnson. Good finish after that from there. He was he was good in this game, as I said before. Um not the prettiest quarter in the world in the third. Overall there was some officiating going on throughout the second half. And especially there was a very, very bad slash weird Continuation call for the Spurs at the end of the third quarter on a three-point play. But yeah, it's kind of a weirdly officiated game overall. Anyway, 17 for throw attempts combined in the third. It was kind of uh, not fun to watch, but the Hawks shot it great. 5-7 from three in the third quarter to kind of stay afloat and keep their lead despite um, losing the quarter by two. Um, in the fourth, I'm trying to push through this because it's going to be very long. At any rate, um, they stayed with the bench for a little while longer than I would have probably wanted to early in the fourth quarter. They didn't get killed and uh, Akongwu and Lewis were pretty good early on, but the Spurs got it down to one 
at one point early. Uh, a couple of threes by, by Snell and Gallinari. When Trey came back in, by the way, he had a huge heat pack on his knee. I thought it was an ice pack, and he actually said post game it, it was a heat pack. Still, uh, it was a you know one of those things that you don't love to see your best player with a giant pack on his knee mid game. He ended up coming back in though. The margin was kind of hanging in that small lead range, like you know one to four points for three or four minutes straight. There was a missed bunny by Capella. That would have given the Hawks a five-point lead that ended up rattling out. That was his one fatal flaw in this game. It was kind of a bunch of missed shots near the rim, as it has been throughout the season. I'm not going to go full play-by-play because there's so much to get to. But, um, you know, a couple of pretty shaky moments offensively at the end of the fourth quarter. The Hawks led by six at 107 to 101 and were in some pretty good control. Uh, and then Trey had kind of a bad stretch. He missed he missed a shot in the lane um, that had a bad turnover on a pass by Gall- a pass to Gallinari. That Gall- Gallo could have caught it for sure, but it was a bad pass. No question. Um, they got built out by a Patty Mills air ball, but then Trey turned it over again when they were up four with about 90 seconds to go. As I said before, like Trey was not good for four quarters for four quarters in this game. He was awesome in the overtimes, no question about it. Um, but you know, from there he got he got to the line though, which was a nice play for, by him with 30, 38 seconds to go, made both. But then he gave, I think he was instructed to do this because he was uh, not full strength, but he gave an auto foul with about 40 seconds to go. That was his fifth foul to get him off the court on defense. I think was the plan there, just to have him not be out there, which is okay when you're up by four. But he gives it. That's his fifth, which is the risk there is that you go to overtime, and they ended up going to overtime. He didn't foul out though, which was nice. But they brought in Herder for defense because Young couldn't really move, and that was the next guy up. He was you know kind of fresh. But they had then they had these night this nightmare sequence. So it didn't matter at the end of the day because they won this game. But they get a stop. They're up four. They get a stop. The game should be over at that point basically. But the Spurs are trying to foul. Herder turns it over in pretty frustrating fashion. He might have been fouled, but, you know, not not, not a good play. Uh, turns it over at midcourt. Spurs got a three-point play in, in transition uh, that they convert. Um, that's one of those also where, like, everything goes wrong. Like, Herder, bad turnover. Um, also shouldn't foul. You're up four. Like, give up a layup. It's totally fine. You don't need to contest there. Give up a layup, you, and then you have the ball back. But three-point play is like a disaster scenario there. Um, the Hawks get it back, though. They're still winning. Only up by one, 15 seconds to go. Trey gets fouled with 11.4 to go, splits them as well. So misses misses one of free throws. He's obviously an awesome free throw shooter usually, misses one there. The Spurs get it back down two. They play a defensive lineup, which was the smart thing to do. Is Bogdanovich, Herder, Snell, Hill, and Capella. So no Gallo and no Trey, which is a good decision. Um, but DeRozan gets Hill in an ISO. It was pretty good defense, I thought. It wasn't like he, you know, he didn't stop him, but he was in his face. It was a tough shot. DeRozan's just really good at that stuff. I probably, I might have helped. Although DeRozan is a good, is a good passer for sure, but I would have probably sent somebody else at him. At any rate, they, he makes that, ties the game, two point seven seconds to go, and the Hawks are tied now after blowing the lead. So that's kind of frustrating. I will say this: absolutely awesome ATO play by Nate McMillan. That's kind of lost now because they, they, they didn't, they didn't win it there, but. Is Bogdanovich finds Gallinari, who finds Trey on a handoff going to the rim. You know, that's a that's beautiful design. You get your best player going downhill to relatively open. He couldn't, he couldn't go all the way to the rim, but a pretty open floater from Trey Young, and it just doesn't fall. But that was an awesome call and a good shot and a good look, and what are you going to do? He just misses it, and the Hawks go to overtime. So at that point, you're not feeling ideal, I don't think, after blowing that lead and also, you know, the way that it ended and probably could have gone your way at the buzzer. Still, though, the Hawks did their job and held held the line from that point forward. They started with Gallinari, and he, they played Gallinari for the most part in the two overtimes instead of Hill. Otherwise, it was the starters. There was actually three empty trips in a row for both sides to open overtime, which is a change for the rest of the half because was, there was a lot of offense, especially after halftime in this game, except for that one little downturn. But uh, Trey turned it over. That was his one 
sort of one mishap in the overtime period. Um, the Spurs hadn't led since the first quarter until the overtime period. They took the lead briefly there, um, that, but then Young kind of took over from that point forward. He finds Capella for an easy one on the next trip. DeRozan misses. Then Trey makes his first three of the night on his first three-point attempt of the night in overtime. That's a rarity for sure. The Spurs score. Trey then answers in mid-range to go back up by three. DeRozan gets fouled, makes both, but then Young hits another floater, so he scores seven points in a row for Atlanta after struggling for most of the night. Um, Rudy Gay did tie it on a three, 119-119. Trey finally missed one on a pretty contested layup. I actually was surprised it didn't fall. I thought it was going to go in for sure with about 45 seconds to go. But then the Hawks got a stop because it was a lost possession for the, for the Spurs. DeRozan got Gallinari in the air, and I don't know why he didn't just go into him for free throws because if, if he does that, the Hawks might lose this game in the first overtime. But he doesn't do it. He finds Derek White, who had to s- sort of throw up one at the shot clock buzzer that he misses. Hawks get the ball back um, with 16.6 seconds to go. This is also frustrating. This is kind of the one black mark in the overtimes. The Hawks get the ball back with 17 seconds left almost, and they don't get a shot off. And it wasn't like they didn't turn it over. It wasn't like, 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 like they turned it over. Trey just waited a little bit too long. Uh, he, he got trapped. He passed Bogdanovich about you know, a beat or two late. And then Bogdanovich dribbled one extra time. So it was kind of a dual responsibility there, but they did not even get a shot off. That's definitely not what you want in that spot. Um, so it, again, it didn't matter. They won the game. But uh, another thing, just kind of circle looking back at it. And then in the double, in the double overtime, as we try to finish out this marathon segment, um, <laughs> a great help block by Capella on the first trip against DeRozan. It looked like Capella might have tweaked his ankle slash foot when he came down. He stayed in the game, but that's a potential concern. He obviously had the heel issues this season. But Capella gets a lob, a lob finish on the next possession. He looks, he, it looked fine after that little tweak that I saw. Um, the Hawks did give up the lead one more time. Um, White got to the got to the free throw line after a make for, for a three point play to give them the lead. But then from that point forward, it was more Trey Young. Um, Trey finds Bogdanovich for a good look. They have the Hawks the lead back up by three, um, and then they trade empty trips, and then Trey hits another three, his second of the night, to go up by four. They get a stop on DeRozan. In fact, uh, Tony Snell, especially in the in the overtime, the second overtime, I should say, really slowed down DeRozan, who missed three shots in a row. That was a good time to finally slow him down a little bit. So shout out to Tony Snell for that. Um, and then Trey gets to the rim to go up by six with 118 to go. Now, it should be, not over, but you're in a great, you're in a great spot there, but it ended up not being because the Hawks were not ready to win this game going away. They give up free throws. They did melt the clock down effectively on the, on, the, on the next trip up by four, but then Trey misses a contested long two. So you're up four. Rudy Gay hits a three. So suddenly it's one again with 33 seconds to go. And they had enough time when they didn't have the foul, which is not what you want. But the dagger comes. A great play. Trey Young drives. Um, I would say attracts the defense. Finds Gallinari in the left corner, who throws an absolutely beautiful, you know, erotic, non-suitable for work <laughs> uh, pass fake at the Spurs defense. It draws the attention away from him, and then he hits a dagger three in the left corner with 11.8 seconds to go to basically win the game, to go by four. So that was the biggest shot of the game. You know, obviously, Trey was the story in the, in the overtimes with his offense, but that was the biggest single shot of the game was Gallinari's shot to kind of put the game away. They get a stop there, and that is the end of that. So... A lot that obviously went on there, lots of back and forth, and if you watched this game or didn't, I know this game went very late as I'm recording this very late, that was because this game went so late, but uh, yeah, we will see on the rest of this stuff. Before we get to some takeaways and some individual breakdowns, as we always do on the podcast, a word from our sponsors, and the first of which is betonline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and the easiest way to bet on all of your sports action today. 
even without football, for a little while longer. You're, there's plenty to wager on, including the NBA, of course. College basketball is in full swing, both men's and women's right now, and the NHL is also happening. You have golf, you have soccer, you have tennis, auto racing, UFC, all that kind of stuff is available for you at betonline.ag, and BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds are present, and you have props on almost anything you can imagine right now at BetOnline, and BetOnline has you covered for all your news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website right now at betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today. And if you do that, you'll receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit if you use our promo code, and that is promo code Locked On. Yes, that is 50% free cash and a welcome bonus with promo code Locked On. One more time, promo code Locked On at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Today's show is also sponsored by Bill Bar. Built Bar is fantastic. It's the best tasting protein bar on the market. And for me, the best tasting protein bar ever. Built Bar tastes fantastic. It's low calorie. It's low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and has 100% chocolate on all of its bars. And now is the time to find out which Built Bar is the absolute best. It is Built Bar Madness, as it has been for the last couple of weeks. And now today's matchup is the much anticipated battle between Coconut Brownie Chunk and Cookie Dough Chunk in the finals. Yes, the finals of Built Bar Madness. The winner will be crowned pretty soon. And personally, I lean towards Cookie Dough Chunk, but I only have one vote here. I have to say that. I only have one vote. That matters here, but your vote counts as much as mine. Go to BuiltBar.com or use at bar underscore built on Twitter. And remember to use the promo code LOCKED15. When you do that, you'll have 15% off on your next order with Built Bar. That is promo code LOCKED15. 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. And check back to see who won the matchup for today in the entire bracket itself to become the best tasting protein bar ever. One more time, that is promo code LOCKED15. 15% off. Check it all out at BuiltBar.com. Okay, and we'll get to some takeaways now before we get out of here on this fine Thursday into Friday. And overall, the Hawks scored at a really high level in this game. They scored 1.19 points per possession. Now, it was a slow-paced game, um, but also had the 10 extra minutes, so it's kind of a wonky thing. So the points per possession is the best way to um, figure out the offense here, and they did a very good job scoring throughout the night. They shot it great in the second half, as I said before. They were a perfect 50 for 100 from the floor, which is very easy to calculate. They, got, they shot the wall well at the line, headline Mike Capella, 21-26, they had 28 assists. Um, Rebounding-wise, the Hawks were better than the Spurs, but it was definitely a one-shot and ending game for the most part. Neither team offensive rebounded very well overall. It was a lot of pretty good defensive rebounding. Other than that, though, the Hawks shot the ball a lot better than the Spurs. The reason why this game was close, when you factor in the edge the Hawks had with the shooting, is that the Spurs turned it over six times in 58 minutes, which is incredible. That's an incredibly low number, even for a 48-minute game. But uh, that's a crazy one. The Hawks actually did a good job as well. Only 12, only 12 turnovers from the Hawks. That's very, very good by Atlanta standards through uh, you know a game and a quarter, a game and a third or something like that. Um, but the Hawks lost the turnover battle. So obviously the Spurs took 11 more shots than the Hawks did in this game. Part of that's free throw line, which they actually only took two, two, less, uh, two fewer shots. But the Spurs, uh, you know, just didn't turn the ball over very much, which is an advantage for them. At any rate, the Hawks still managed to outlast them with the offense. Defensively, it was not a great performance, nor was it a bad performance. It was kind of in the middle. The Spurs ended up scoring more than you would want, about 1.14-ish points per possession, which is worse than you would want, again, for a full game. But given where the Hawks were, uh, clearly at the end of this game, it was offense, offense, offense on both sides. 
and the Hawks did a pretty decent job. The only guy that they just could not get a handle on for most of this night was Derek White. And, you know, DeRozan had his moments, too. Obviously, he actually led the team in scoring 36 points. But White hit seven threes. That was a big thing. The Hawks did a good job, though, limiting the supporting options. Rudy Gay got going a little bit late, but he's still 6-16. Um, and combined, Kelton Johnson, who I like, who was bad in this game, I like him, um, and Patty Mills were 3-18. of 18. So those two guys struggling really helped the Hawks defensively. But, you know, they did enough on defense. It was definitely an offense win, I think, overall. But uh, just putting that all in perspective. And also, <laughs> we'll come back to this in a second, but um, I'm going to be very positive about Trey Young in a second. Trey Young had more turnovers in this game than the Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> which is just a funny thing to point out. And again, Trey had a perfectly reasonable number of turnovers. Like seven's a lot, but it's not a crazy amount for a guy who's also kind of, you know, visibly injured and all that stuff. The Spurs, again, though, just taking care of the ball at a ridiculous level throughout the game. Um, all right, to the uh, individual stuff that we always do here. We'll go to the bench first. It's kind of interesting to see the Hawks had 13 guys active, only 10 played in a double overtime game. Good with nine minutes. He had eight points, three rebounds, and two assists. He hit two buzzer beater things, basically. Um, I thought Brandon was good in this game. He wasn't like incredible. The shot making was impressive. He had two he had two assists as well. I thought he played very well. I'll be interested to see if we play, if we see Skylar Mays on Friday, given the back to back and all that stuff. But I thought BG was good in this game. Uh, the other guy who played the second fewest was a, was a Kong Wu, but a career high night with ten points for him, five rebounds, four six on the floor, two four from the free throw line. Is the only kind of black mark he missed both free throws in, in, in the second half. But other than that, I thought a Kong Wu was like capital G good. In this game, it's one of those nights where I try to remind people just to not panic about Kongwu. He's had such a weird season so far. I know you know he's you know rookies are bad in general, which is something I say over and over again. But he had a particularly weird one with the injury and the pandemic and just not being able to play and not being able to go to the G League and not practicing. And they're on a good team now as well. That's something I pointed out. I think it's something on Twitter this week, but. Um, comparing him to like Cam Reddish, for instance, who just who was bad as a rookie for the most part, but got to play a lot. And this is something I pointed out. Like the Hawks are in this spot now where they're they're winning. They're not going to just put him out there in the way the Hawks did with their rookies for years, honestly, because they're rebuilding. So he had to earn his time. He played well in this game. Like I had no problem with him playing. I think he should have played. He, if anything, maybe more than he did in this game. But he was really good. The zone, I think, is good and effective on the second unit, and uh, it was a nice night for a Kongwu. So I don't, I don't want to go overboard for sure, but a very, very positive data point. Uh, the one guy who, like, I think openly struggled in this game was Kevin Herter, and Herter is struggling right now overall. He did not score in 16 minutes. He played some defensive replacement stuff late, but it was mostly he was not on the court in the closing minutes other than that. He only took four shots, missed all four, was 0 of 3 from the 3, had an assist and a rebound, but in the last eight games... Kevin Herter is 19 of 65 from the floor. That is 29%. That's from the floor, not from three. So that's obviously bad. I've seen some people talking about how Herter's been this huge disappointment this season. I would not say that. I think actually Kevin was playing pretty well until this run. Obviously, that eight-game sample size, you can't overlook it. It does matter. Um, but I think it's 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 accurate to say he's struggling recently. That is definitely true. Um, saying he was been bad for the season is just that's not true. It's more of an overreaction to the short, to this multiple size. But listen, you can't uh, overcome, especially with Kevin Herter's profile. He cannot overcome being a bad shooter like that for that long. Um, so that's going to be obviously he's going to have to bounce back. Um, he's not starting anymore. It's a different role for him right now. But Donovich is better than he is. All that stuff. But he's, he still needs to be a part of what they're what, what they're doing. They're still going to they're still going to play him. And he was not good in this game. So I, wanna, I don't, I don't want to pile on. I think, I think Kevin's actually been better than you might think this season. But in the last eight games, the numbers are what they are, and he has to bounce back in the near future. Um, elsewhere on the bench, Lou Williams, 22, 22 minutes in his Hawks re-debut. 
Um, actually, it wasn't efficient. It was 3 of 10 from the floor, but I thought had some really nice flashes, particularly in the first half. Seven points, had five assists, which is good. I think his passing was really popping off, and, and especially in the pick and roll. I think he's going to help Kongwu for sure in that pick and roll setting. And just having a steady hand there, just the threat of creation. Lou gets guarded. That's the thing. I, I think Rondo gets respect as well, but people, you know, defenses are definitely afraid of Lou Williams, and they should be because he's a proven commodity as an offensive player. Um, defensively, there are some weaknesses to be sure, but you saw it in this game already. You know, obviously the Spurs know Lou very well, and he was guarded like Lou Williams, and that very much helps everybody else and also helps him. So as he gets integrated, he'll be even better, I think, but he was good in this game. You saw the effects of his offense right away. Um, and the last guy off the, off the bench is Gallinari. 36 minutes for Gallinari, who basically played the entirety of the two overtimes other than a, a defensive only possession here or there. But 16 points, 12 rebounds, the biggest shot of the game, uh, had, a, had an assist and a steal. 5-12 from the floor was not incredible, but 2-4 from three, 4-4 four, four from, four, four from the free throw line. So um, he was more he was efficient enough. It was plus 12. That was a game best. And uh, Gallinari, you know, me, obviously the, the biggest shot of the night for sure. But other than that, I think he played pretty well. And the zone will help him, too, on defense. That's a big, big factor. In the starting lineup, Solomon Hill got the start. Obviously, I've mentioned that before, but I didn't have a huge issue with that. I think people always react to the fact that, you know, Solomon, Solomon Hill starting? What are you talking about? I'm, I'm not saying he's better than Gallinari because he's not. But the matchup was interesting there. I don't know if that's going to happen moving forward as long as Collins is out, but I think that it actually did make some sense in this particular game. Um, he had some decent defensive moments, had three points, six rebounds, had a block and an assist. Always took four shots. You know, he wasn't great by any means, but he's fine and can switch and all that stuff. Tony Snell, a very Tony Snell output. 44 minutes, and he took five shots. <laughs> the most He's one of the most low-usage wings in the entire league, but obviously a great shooter. It was two or four from three, as he is often basically the season. Um, four rebounds and assist. I said it before, but good defense on DeRozan in the overtime, especially the second overtime. That was very helpful. And then the three headliners in this spot, other than Akongwu uh, and Lou uh, for different reasons. The standouts were Capella, Young, and Bogdanovich. We'll go to Capella first. Capella had 28 points, 17 rebounds, and 5 block shots. That is obviously excellent. 9-15 from the floor is just fine. It's not incredible for him. And he definitely missed a handful of very makeable bunnies around the rim. But I can't stress this enough. 10 of 10 from the free throw line is great for Capella. You will take this all day long. Essentially, he scored 28 points on... 20 shooting possessions, which is more than enough. That's like shooting 70% from the floor. So, he'll take that all day long. He was really good offensively by his standards. Defensively, it was not his best work. But obviously, had a bunch of block shots and had some nice highlight plays. He, he definitely got tired. It would not blow me away if they limited him a little bit on Friday. Because he uh, is, you, don't, you don't want him playing a ton of minutes like this. But they needed to get the win. So, they played him and they rode him. And hopefully, he's feeling alright on Friday. Uh, Bogdanovich, a season high. 28 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. He was particularly awesome in the first, like, three quarters. He was still fine down the stretch, by any, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, he had a season high pretty early. Uh, and also had the stretch where, again, I think he hit 21 points and 11 shots, which is crazy. But um, 28 points on 17 shots, 4 or 5 from 3. His confidence level is sky high. He was really good the other night as well. So he's coming into his own for sure. You can't expect this level of performance from really anyone, but man, he's uh, playing very well and good to see the signs of the guy the Hawks wanted to bring in. And then Trey Young. As I said, like he was not particularly good through four quarters. He was 5 of 13 from the floor, and he didn't take a three in the first four, in the, in the first four quarters, I should say. And I think he had six turnovers, maybe seven. I think it was six. So it was a below average, like borderline pretty bad game for him by his standards in the first four quarters. And then when the lights were on, 
15 points on 6 of 10 in the two overtimes to carry the Hawks to the victory. So pros and cons, Trey hopefully is not going to be laboring too much from the knee tweak that he had. It wouldn't stun me, I'll say this, if he didn't play on Friday. Uh, That's not me reporting anything whatsoever, but when you have a guy who plays... 35 minutes only in a double overtime game when he's your best player. They were clearly trying to limit him a little bit when he sat for 11 minutes in the second half. He plays the he plays the two overtimes. The Hawks announced the tweak of his knee. He had the huge heat back on. It's a back-to-back with travel after double overtime game. It just wouldn't surprise me if Trey didn't play tomorrow. I'm not going to say that. That's just me guessing. That's not information. Uh, just wouldn't wouldn't stun me. But he does like to play. So Trey is very, very good about getting out there whenever, whenever he possibly can. So it also wouldn't surprise me if he played. So there you go. Um, any rate, that's enough of that for now. The Hawks get this win, and with the win, they're back to 500 on the season at 24 and 24. They're now in a they're now in a tie for sixth in the East with the Knicks as of this recording, and uh, they break the losing skid of four of the last five before this. That's a nice uh, bounce back win here. Boston's a game back of the Hawks. Indiana's two games back, and Charlotte and Miami are a half game ahead in a tie for fourth. The game on Friday. Is a quick turnaround, obviously, after double overtime game. They have to travel to New Orleans. Not a, not a hugely long trip from San Antonio to New Orleans, but still, you have to travel. The Pelicans, though, did play tonight. That's helpful. It's a back-to-back for them as well. And they were actually in overtime, too. Uh, they were shorthanded without Zion, Brandon Ingram, and Lonzo Ball, so not surprised they lost. But the Hawks, this is a... I said this a couple times on the podcast before. This is a bad, bad, bad schedule spot for the Hawks, and it has been even before they play double overtime tonight. The last game of an eight-game trip on a back-to-back is just brutal in a lot of ways. So it won't surprise me if they are out of gas tomorrow, but you got this win tonight. It makes it a little bit easier, and also the Pelicans are vulnerable, it seems. They're on a back-to-back as well. Zion might not play. We won't know that until probably Friday afternoon, but Zion and Ingram both missing the game on Thursday is noteworthy. Lonzo's been out for a while, so that was, was more expected, but Maybe the Pelicans were saving Zion and Ingram for the second game of the back-to-back. They were playing Orlando. That was a winnable game, even without the, without, without those guys. So maybe that's a strategy, but we will see. But both teams are going to be less than 100%, I'm pretty sure. And the Hawks being without both Collins and Hunter already, on top of everything else, and, and Reddish and Dunn and all that stuff. So it, it could be pretty ugly on Friday. Two tired teams, probably. But the Hawks have a chance to win that one, even if... They're missing some guys. They could certainly win that game. Uh, New Orleans defense has been terrible this year. That level's playing field a little bit. So we'll see. I'll have plenty more on that after the game on Friday. Also, if you want some updates during the day on Friday, you can follow me on Twitter at BT Roland or follow the show on Twitter at Locked on Hawks. Hopefully that covers what was a marathon game here on a Thursday evening into Friday morning. Thank you as always for listening to the podcast. Rate, review, subscribe, slash follow, whichever the button is on your podcast player of choice. And uh, yeah, thanks again for listening, and we'll see everybody after the game on Friday.